Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Uh-oh. Do you have it? <laughs> I have my drinking coffee out of my uh, Amiel Huckleberry <laughs> brand new tombstone mug. That's uh, it's a good mug. It's a good looking mug. It looks durable. Mm. That coffee tastes like victory. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, to be fair, okay, so this is actually a crossover event, I guess. So we made a bet on the Track Nerds podcast for the listeners here while we were recording our best of 2021 movie episode, whatever, and Tom Brady had just announced his retirement. Logan was skeptical, and so we made a bet that Tom Brady would never play an NFL game again, and then like three days later, Tom Brady announced that he was coming back. But uh, at time of recording, he has not yet played said NFL game. So if he re-retires here in the next month, that mug is mine. But also, that's true. this episode won't air until like after the NFL season. So the listener will know whether that mug truly belongs to Logan or myself. Right, yeah. That's a good point. If he does re-retire and then never plays again, I, I w- you can have this mug. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> that would be the bet, yeah. Uh, wait, wait, no way! I bought the mug though, so you there there to be a conversation the other way a little bit too. Then oh, okay, all right. So then I I owe you a mug, something, then. yeah. But it was funny though because when when we were recording that episode, you know, I was like, oh, this is a fake retirement, Rich. Like he's definitely coming back, and then it, and you were like, oh no, he's retired. It was like literally what, like two or three days oh, later. Yeah, yeah. If that, yeah. like almost immediately, almost immediately. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess I just kind of figured. It's one thing if you're like, oh, you know, 38. But like when he's already like the oldest quarterback ever, like or at least quality starting quarterback ever, why would you wait until that point to retire and then unretire? Just don't retire in the first place. So I, I don't know. I guess the, the reason that I was so skeptical is because there was no pomp and circumstance. It was like mm. unexpected Twitter announcement. And I was like, this is not real. There's no uh, way. Oh, no. I still say it was real at the time. And then he reconsidered. Oh, okay. You think he was actually he was going to retire and then change his mind? Yeah, and s- supposedly, <laughs> I apologize for <laughs> the listeners. This is the History and Film podcast, and we're going to get to that. <laughs> but Logan and I are, we can we can even cut. Well, this that's too. true too. Uh, that's true too. We'll see. So, pretty sure Tom Brady's dad had mentioned that there may have been internal pressure from the Buccaneers to be like. You know, if, if you're going to decide, we we need to, you know, it's actually the same kind of thing happened to Red Favre. We need to know what your plans are so we can move on. So maybe, right. you know, it's time to retire. Okay, yeah, I guess so. I think it was maybe, and that's, and that's from Tom Brady's dad, not from even from Tom Brady himself or the organization. But so there may have been a little bit of pressure. Right. Um, and he was like, yeah, okay, yeah, it's probably time. Which led to the announcement that I thought was in earnest and probably was in earnest, but also then why he later recanted and redecided, no, I, what am I doing? I want to keep playing. So I'm going to keep playing. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we can probably... Anyway, speaking of Buccaneers... Oh, there's the connection! We did it! <laughs> yes, Tom Brady remains a Buccaneer, and our movie today is the 1958 film, The Buccaneer. Well done, Logan. That's actually... Yeah, we did that on purpose. Totally on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> where are we okay yeah so today we're discussing the yeah the film the buccaneer starring yul brenner and charlton heston 
And my first thought as I said that was, Yul Brenner's just a way better actor than Charlton Heston. Yeah. Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah. I, I So I, I kind of like Charlton Heston. Like, I am a fan of, you know, a lot of oh, his no, stuff. Oh, no, same. Like, yeah. But yeah, I... I I really like Yul Brenner. Right. I mean, I I love old Yul Brenner movies, man. Like The Magnificent Seven. This like maybe my favorite role that he's in, and it's like one of my favorite film characters of all time. Okay. Okay. You're gonna be mad then because I'm not a hundred percent sure I've seen The Magnificent Seven. But in my defense, I've seen The Seven Samurai, which is like the original version, really. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, completely different. You like movie. it. You'd like it. It's a. I may have seen it. I. I but I guess I, if I don't remember, we'll we'll say I must not have seen it because I don't remember Yul Brenner being in it. So I. I bet I actually haven't even got around to seeing the Magnificent Seven. So. Okay. Well, you would remember Yul Brenner. In okay. It. Okay. Because yeah, he's he's pretty cool. He's just he's just a cool actor. But, yeah. I mean, all all of his stuff though, like Ten Commandments, uh, The King and I, like those. Are, it's all. He's good. He's in Ten Commandments. Too. Oh wait, he's. Ramses. He's to Charles he's Moses. Yeah. To Charles Chesney's Moses. Oh, I didn't even think about them yes. being in the same. Yeah, thing. this is like a little. Yeah. It's like a little reunion here. Nice. Okay. With Cecil B. DeMille also. Right. Who? Yeah. So, which he didn't. He didn't direct the Buccaneer. Well, he did, but not but, this version. Oh, th- th- okay. True. And he was gonna direct this one too, but he was just too old. Like he literally died a year after this movie came. Okay. Out. Yeah. And then yeah. So. We're kind of dancing all around, but that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the Buccaneer. We're going to talk about all the historical yep. stuff related to it. So, yeah, it was directed by Anthony Quinn, who I didn't realize was actually, it says Cecil B. DeMille's son-in-law at the time the movie was made. And it's the only film Anthony Quinn ever directed. So, it's almost like DeMille was kind of, he may have been helping out behind the scenes. He wasn't actually the director, right. but he was around to kind of yep. give his advice to his son-in-law who wasn't you know typically a director right and i think that's the the reason that it says like supervised by Mm. cecil b Mm -hmm. demille at the at the beginning of the movie um and and he's in it cecil b demille is the guy isn't he the guy that's doing the little history lesson at the beginning pointing out everything on the map oh that would make sense i bet now you say that i'm sure it was but i'd have to pull up a picture to confirm i yeah that makes sense because yeah he's also makes a cameo in sunset boulevard playing himself right because you got norma desmond in the washington because i say that because that, that's rough that's also in the 50s so yeah the 50s was definitely kind of when demille was the elder statesman in hollywood still around but yeah like you said probably you know what died in 1959 so anyway showed up a lot wasn't working as much but still just kind of always around because he was like the og big director guy i mean cecil b demille is uh Right. Big time director. Oh, yeah. He's a huge, huge name in like early, early Hollywood. Kind of like one of the first epic guys. Like he was doing all the right epics. Yeah. And actually, as I'm as we're saying all this, I'm trying to think of like a the big Cecil B. DeMille film. And I'm actually drawing a blank. It's probably I mean, Ten Commandments is the one the first one that I knew and the one that I kind of associate with him the most just because but that's kind of later in his career. But you're right. Right. It, later in his career. But like. You know, it's it's on TV every at least it used to be on TV every year. And he was actually kind of remaking his. his, his that was another instance of him remaking his own movies. Like he made the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, but he also made the Ten Commandments like in the twenties as like right. an, an early thing. Okay, yeah. So he was doing like you know Cleopatra, Cleopatra in the thirties, right? Yeah, it is kind of more just the uh, early director. Oh, he's even doing like silent films. So he's a big silent film guy. Okay, so his. Yeah, his later stuff, actually, his last movie, The Ten Commandments, and, his, and the Greatest Show on Earth, are two of the bigger ones that were like you know best picture contenders. But it was more that he was just kind of the guy for decades, directing stuff all the way back to like 1914. Okay, that's why he's the guy. Anyway, he did not direct this film, but he did kind of supervise it. 
and it's very it's very it's got a very like Cecil B. DeMille style to it. Like you can tell he was involved. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Even though Anthony Quinn is the actually credited director, I would say it's it's fine. It, it, I didn't. It's kind of similar to a lot of the movies we've seen to start our American history list that we've been pretty underwhelmed, but most of them have been tolerable. This isn't too, you know, too different than, say, a Northwest Passage. Um, it's probably a little better, maybe, than a Northwest Passage. Oh, I liked it a lot more than Northwest Passage. Okay. It's not, it's not like, super great, and it's, like, it's definitely made in, right. you know, 1958, like, with the effects and it's basically everything is on a soundstage no right but which is typical for the time right you, know, you have like the shitty green screen <laughs> of course it's, it's, it's not even green screen they usually back then it was like matte paintings and rear projection and stuff they weren't using green screens yet yeah yeah, yeah. And, and the reviews can reflect that it's a 6.4 on imdb uh it's a <laughs> na slash 66 on rotten tomatoes and it does actually have three critics reviews and only one of those was positive, so technically it's a 33% critic side on Rotten Tomatoes, but with only three reviews and not meeting the threshold. And honestly, there you go. You and I would actually probably both give it a recommend, so that bumps it right there to over 50%. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. with the caveat that it's a movie that's made in 1958. Take like, it for what it is. Most of them are just kind of not awesome. Right, no, right, <laughs> right. And it did get one Oscar nomination for Best Costume Design. I can see that. That feels about right, too, yeah. So, yeah, this movie does take place during the War of 1812, so that's going to be the focus of our discussion here today. But before we get into that, I always like to bridge the gap between where we were last time and just kind of the world at this time. So, before we even get to bridging the gap from last week from Hamilton, or two weeks ago from Hamilton, um, I actually wanted to talk about just New Orleans and Louisiana itself. And how it kind of predates okay. even, you know, the United States, obviously. So our movie technically is set in 1815 because we're going to get to the Battle of New Orleans, which is in January of 1815. So that kind of really narrows down our timeline. So we kind of already know this. And New Orleans is a city that everyone does kind of talk about being unique even today within the United States. And I've never really given a lot of thought as to why that is. Obviously, we know this is a French Creole influence, but... I mean, specifically, this is a city founded in 70, 1718 when this was not a British colony. So you end up with this major city that is in French territory. It was kind of just considered a, quote, colonial backwater for its first few decades. You know, just kind of this city on the Gulf out past the frontier. And again, it wasn't even part of the British colonies. It was, it was in, the, in the French territory, which then later becomes right. a Spanish colony in 1762. So still well before the revolution. So it goes from French hands to Spanish hands. And the Spanish had to actually be kind of oppressive to keep the local French population in line. There's lots of violence. And a lot of the initial city was even burned down. And it was the Spanish who rebuilt the wooden kind of downtown, which you think of like the old French Quarter. That was actually built under Spanish control after the initial uh, settlement was, was destroyed. But then in 1803, Napoleon gets it back from the Spanish. But then, of course, quickly decides to sell all of Louisiana, like the whole Louisiana Territory, going way up north into the Midwest uh, to Thomas Jefferson and the United States. So then you have, early 1800s, a bunch of Americans, the British-descended Americans in their, from their new country, are now pouring into this new territory with its French and Spanish background. So that's why it really is kind of new, uh, unique, and people talk about New Orleans being kind of the most European-feeling American city even today. So it, it is really kind of unique. 
The other thing I wanted to mention is the geography of New Orleans, which is going to play into the importance of it being a site for this battle we're going to get to in the War of 1812. So with our modern sensibility and climate change and all these hurricanes and being on the Gulf there, it seems like um, New Orleans is a horrible place for a city. Like (laughs) there are water, there's water on all sides. Oh yeah, it's below sea it's level. below sea level there's water on all a sides lot of the city is yeah. right it's like what why why are we putting us why do we put a city here this and the stat i heard this doesn't even sound real and i only saw it on one side it wasn't wikipedia it was like a youtube video or something but basically it was saying louisiana like southern louisiana is losing a football field worth of land every hour and I'm like, how is that? What? I, I, no, I, exactly. So I'm like, I'm, I'm very skeptical. And maybe it's gaining in other places or something too. But it's like, right, that seems unsustainable. But just to give you an idea that there is a land loss kind of with the climate change or anything else going on there too. That sounds extreme, but there is something going on there. So it seems ridiculous that there's a city there. The flip side, and I thought this was fascinating, was the video I was watching was talking about you could also argue pre-climate change and rising sea levels, New Orleans might be the best location for a city in the world. From an economic standpoint, it, it's... Uh, oh, because it's right on the mouth of the Mississippi River. Exactly. So it's, it's controlling the mouth right. of the Mississippi River. And the and again, I don't, I don't know what you call... I'm not a geographer and don't know exactly what everything's called. But basically, if you, if you talk about like the entire network of all like the connected, navigable, interconnected waterways that pour into the Mississippi. It covers more territory than every other river system in the world combined. Oh, I believe that. Right. It's basically the entire United States. Exactly. So it is arguably, if you're not worried about flooding, it's the best place for a city in world history. And I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. So I I just thought that was... It's something I just never would have thought about. Uh, and then my final thought on this is, even though we consider, especially with like the Spanish moss and stuff, the you know a little of the voodoo history, New Orleans kind of seems like this kind of spooky old city. But the ground that it is on is actually some of the newest land in the world. That like the land Louis- uh, in mm-hmm. southern Louisiana there is only about a thousand years old. Like oh, a thousand years ago, that all that all would have been underwater. Uh, and it's only kind of appeared above water in the last thousand years. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. Basically, I'm just trying to build from <laughs> the beginnings of everything into to get to the story, uh, story of our movie here today. Right. After the Louisiana Purchase, yeah, you basically have this French-speaking city with all these Spanish influences that now finds itself as a U.S. territory. Uh, and then in 1812, it becomes a state, which is just a few years before our film here today. And so Andrew Jackson doesn't have a major role in today's movie, but we, he's such an important and, you know, now controversial figure in the history of the United States that I did want to, we're going to talk about him basically through the War of 1812 here today, and then we'll actually probably continue talking about Andrew Jackson and his presidency after that. So he, he, is, he is important. Uh, he is the guy that I'm on favor with pulling from the 20, which is supposed to happen at some point here, but hasn't happened yet. But... Anyway, he's an interesting guy, very interesting guy. We always talk about our candidates for interesting people in American history, potential tournament. Andrew Jackson's got to be on that list. He's a fascinating guy. Yeah. And I just kind of like how we're, you know, we're, we're bridging the gap from Hamilton and we just, you know, talked about the presidency of Thomas Jefferson and we're 
you know, getting into James Madison with the War of 1812 and the burning of the White House that happens during the War of 1812. So Andrew Jackson uh, was born in 1767. So you think about him being nine years old when, you know, all the Declaration of Independence stuff is going down. He's born in the Carolinas, and we actually still don't know to this day whether he was born in North or South Carolina. Basically because there was like family, he had family on both sides of the border, and basically it's which family member's house was he born in, and we don't know if that was the one in South Carolina or the one in North Carolina, so we actually don't know where he was born. Okay. Uh, his dad died in a logging accident just three weeks before he was born, so he never met his father. It's kind of funny, too, reading how even when he's a kid, you think about him as an adult being this guy who was easily offended and quick to duel people who, like, offended his wife and all those kinds of things. That's kind of the reputation he has. Yeah. That was him as a kid, too. He was a little kid that was easily offended and quick to fight everybody and kind of considered a bully, but also the kind of bully that would maybe take a bunch of the weaker kids under his wings, maybe get his little gang going. So kind of this aggressive, combative natural leader at the same time which again it's just kind of neat to see him as a kid when that is kind of who he becomes as an adult right during the uh, american revolution a lot happened to andrew jackson when he was 14 years old so basically 1781 so we're in the we're in the fighting uh of the american revolution and when he is 14 years old he and his brother are captured by british british soldiers and a British soldier leaves, leaves him with scars on his head and hands when Jackson refused to like clean his boots. He and his brother were so poorly fed, they supposedly almost starved to death. He and his brother both got smallpox, and their mom was finally able to get them released. And on the way, on the walk home, it was like raining on them, and they were already sick from smallpox. So his brother died. Jesus. And Andrew Jackson nearly died. Uh, and then not long after that, his mom volunteered to help American POWs on board British ships off the coast. And she got cholera and died aboard one of those ships. All while he was 14. That was all the same year. Good lord. So you now have this young kid with a reason to hate the British. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time, <laughs> big time. So then the rest of his teens, he just kind of bounced around and uh, does become a lawyer by the time he's 20. Uh, largely self-educated, and but then just kind of does enough to you know get you know past the bar and get on the bar in the Carolinas and all that. Uh, then moves out to Nashville, which at that time was like frontier border town. Nashville was the West, yeah. so he moved out there, which is where he met his beloved future wife Rachel, uh, which he does mention in the movie. I don't think he's actually a character in the movie, but he kind of just finally talks about Rachel. I guess I don't need to go into the complete complete detail here, but basically she was already married and unhappy, and then. Gets divorced and marries Jackson, but then there's a little bit of things that would kind of haunt him controversial while for the next several decades that, oh, her divorce wasn't actually final, so technically she's a polygamist. Anyway, he would fight lots of duels over the decades defending uh, Rachel's honor here. Yeah. And then he just kind of gets, starts, you know, investing. He just kind of, he's just kind of a mover shaker out in Tennessee with just land investments, buying slaves. He is a major slaveholder. But again, this is the early 1800s when that was that was common for the time, unfortunately. Just becomes very successful. He's a lawyer, so he's getting into politics. You know, as Tennessee becomes a state, he's like their first congressional representative in Washington, D.C. So he's he's just kind of that guy. Early 1800s, it's, uh, he's kind of getting involved with the Tennessee militia. So politician getting involved with Tennessee militia. So by the time the War of 1812 breaks out... Jackson's like, my Tennessee boys are ready to go. You just tell us when and where you need us. And that's kind of the history of Andrew Jackson as a military guy. 
I mean, so their first action was against a rebellious faction of Creek Indians who were siding with the British. Jackson gets the win. His reputation is building. He gets named uh, or promoted to Brigadier General in the U.S. Army in 1814 at 47 years old. And that's basically down to six months before we get to the Battle of New Orleans. So that's kind of the background of Andrew Jackson. And then finally, the War of 1812 itself I want to establish here because there's a lot that goes with it. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I feel like we're killing a lot of time not talking about this movie. But the events of the movie won't take long to discuss. Right. And basically, the context is kind of everything for this movie. And I don't think you can actually really appreciate this movie without the context. And so much so that for people who haven't seen the movie, the first like five minutes is straight up just Cecil B. DeMille in front of a map. Oh, true. Talking about the historical context of what's going on in the movie. Right. Because even he felt it was important. Yeah. Which is actually kind of cool. Like, yeah. It's something that I, I've never seen that before in a movie where it's like, okay, it's like not in, you know, the setting of the movie. It's literally just right. a guy saying, all right, the movie you're about to watch, here's the history yeah. of it. Here's a map and I'm going to show you where the stuff is and, and why this is all so important, which it's definitely an interesting way to do it. Um, like I said, I'd never seen that done before. It alleviates the need for a lot of like what might seem like boring or you know, long drawn out exposition at the beginning of a right, movie, right? You know, to set that up where it's it's a lot easier and faster to have someone just be like, "All right, here's what's going on." Okay, now let's get on with the movie. Well, and so and uh, refresh my memory here then too. So after Demille does his thing, they cut to like Jackson and some soldiers and stuff. Would that have been, have been would have been like right during or right after their victory against the Creek Indians? Roughly, or or is it more just kind of like after that, and they've kind of just I don't know how how much time was there between the Creek Indian battle and the uh, them going to New Orleans. I mean, six months ish. I mean, it's it's months. Okay, because the the first scene is Jackson finding out that he's been tasked with defending New Orleans. Okay, so be after that then. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was because yeah because they had to get the the threat uh, from the British first before he would have been activated. So there would anyway, it would have been a few months after that, and probably probably in the fall, probably honestly December then. It probably would have been December of. 1814 then when we see that scene and that'll get us into the battle of new orleans in january of 1815 so that would all time out right so the war itself so it was interesting to see too how from the british standpoint they kind of see the war of 1812 as just an aspect of the napoleonic wars that happens to be taking place over here right from the united states standpoint since we had no dog in the fight we were friends with the french Going back to the Revolutionary War, right. obviously, before us, the reason we have the Statue of Liberty, we kind of forget that we were like BFS with the French uh, at this point in our history. Yeah. Then the Brits were kind of like our rival. So basically what happened was, because it was during the Napoleonic Wars, the British start basically straight up abducting seafaring Americans and forcing them to join the British Navy right. to help them against Napoleon. Yeah. Well, because the, the Brits' argument was, you guys are... British, or at least you were born in Britain, oh, or right. you were born in a territory that was, you know, a British colony at the time, or some of them used to actually be British sailors. Right, right. We still just consider you treasonous uh, British, British, as opposed to yeah, we don't necessarily recognize you yet. Exactly. So we, so because you used to be British, we basically reserve the right to make you British again against your will. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> This uh, actually has a massive negative effect on the U.S. economy, and it essentially sets up a blockade along the Atlantic coast, because we can't really 
conduct our trade or transatlantic trade anymore if the British are just going to keep abducting our people here. And then another thing, we probably don't have time to do a big deep dive into, but I really wish maybe we did, is the whole Tecumseh's War thing going on. Mm-hmm. So you did actually have this confederation of tribes fighting against the expansion of the young United States right. uh, led by Tecumseh. Which was another reason that the United States ended up declaring war on the British in 1812 yes. is because the British were really big supporters of those tribes. Exactly. Because they wanted to basically hamper American expansion west. Yes. Because they were still still bitter about the revolution. Exactly. So, yeah, the Brits were helping the natives against the uh, against America. Uh, so the United States does, you know, the Congress does officially declare war on Britain in June of 1812, but kind of at a time where we really had no, not no right to, we definitely had the right to, but like, <laughs> there was no way we could fight them. Like, we were... Right. We didn't have a, a large standing army of any kind uh, that could... It was, it was, yeah, exactly. It was kind of silly, Especially if you're the British standpoint, it's like <laughs> you're not going to believe this one. They just <laughs> they declared right. war against us. Like it was that kind of thing. Yeah, we were the little guy. Right. And then even our early attempts, you know, kind of failed. There was something called like the Battle of Detroit, where you know it, we're in the Great Lakes area trying to move up into Canada, but between the Canadian slash British and then Tecumseh's force from kind of the what is now the kind of the Dakotas, Minnesota area, they kind of defeat us. That we we lose the Battle of Detroit. So there's kind of three fronts or three regions to the conflict of the War of 1812, uh, which again, obviously lasts well outside of 1812. That's just when it began. You have the East Coast, obviously, with all the blockades with the British and doing everything there. You have the Great Lakes area where we're fighting against the forces of Tecumseh and all that. And that's actually where you start getting some victories from a William Henry Harrison. And his campaign slogan was like Tippecanoe and Taylor too, because he wins the Battle of Tippecanoe and all that during that time. And then you also have the South with you know we're going to get to battle new orleans and and that and that part so it's kind of the three not necessarily fronts but three regions and honestly the united states is struggling in all three regions pre henry harrison's uh, success and pre jackson's success in the south right well so much so that the white house was burned and yes so it was a cap like, yes the british took control of washington dc yes but and then not long after that though we get a battle near, actually, I don't know the name of the battle, but you might. We get the battle near Baltimore, where we score an unexpected victory, and one Francis Scott Key was in, you know, observing it and watching our ramparts oh, right. not falling, you know, our flag gallantly right. waving and streaming and all that. So, yes, yes, the Star Spangled Banner does go back. That That comes from the War of 1812. Right. And when we scored an unexpected victory a month after the White House was burned uh, near Baltimore, again, I, I, is it would, would it be in the northern part of the Chesapeake Bay there? Where Baltimore? My geography is not great with off the top of my head on that. It's almost got to be. Baltimore's got to be like at the peak of the Chesapeake Bay because, like, what else would it be? I was just gonna look up and see what what battle that was. Okay, it is the Battle of Baltimore. Okay, and is Baltimore the top of the Chesapeake Bay? That sounds that sounds right. <laughs> I'm gonna verify looking at a map real fast, but. I'm much more familiar with Western United uh-huh. States geography than, but I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. So it is kind of a splinter branch off the Chesapeake Bay. There, I mean, Chesapeake Bay is freaking massive. Yeah. Anyway, so it kind of gets almost honestly to where the it does kind of we actually basically the United States who had no chance overachieves enough with one of, a lot of these young generals and the way we are kind of able to rally together and there is kind of this national pride thing going on 
we at least are able to force a stalemate. So it's not necessarily that we win it. We kind of go from complete underdogs to forcing a stalemate. And so a peace deal is struck in Belgium in December of 1814. So what I don't think they mentioned in this movie is that technically the war was over yeah. <laughs> before this movie starts. So the Battle of New Orleans, which is considered by many to be the most important battle right. of the War of 1812, technically took place after the war was over. But no one had gotten word yet because this is 1814 slash 1815. And if you sign a peace deal in Belgium, right. yeah. it's going to take New Orleans a long time to hear about it. <laughs> So, yes, that does bring us to the movie today, where because of the economics, economic and military importance, the strategic location of the city of New Orleans, that is, you know, it is now in the United States, or it's the territory of the United States, but it's new to the United States, and the British want to get there and take control of New Orleans because it is such a strategic point at the mouth of the Mississippi, and then what they could be able to right. do if they control the Mississippi, that would be huge for the war effort. Now, again, the, the people then going to take it don't realize the war is basically ended. But exactly for our purposes here today, they didn't know, so we don't have to know. And then Andrew Jackson is taxed with its defense. And so the main character of our story today is, uh, is it Jean? Jean Lafitte. Lafitte. Jean Lafitte. A pirate from the area right. who basically yeah. both sides are trying to recruit to help them. So why don't you tell us all about what there is to know about Jean Lafitte, so, played by Yul Brenner today. So again, we kind of have to go a little bit before where we see him in the movie, like with, with Jackson, just to kind of understand what he's doing there. But there's actually not a ton that's known about his early, early life. And that's for a couple reasons. Um, number one, no one was writing stuff down about him until, you know, later on in his life anyway, because he was just a, like him and his brother basically grew up pretty poor. Another reason <laughs> is because Lafitte is, I guess, a pretty common last name, at least it was at the time, for people in the area of New Orleans. And a lot of those people were also involved in the sailing industry. And so there's like tons of people that just went by Captain Lafitte. Oh, and we don't know which one, if any, is him. Right. Okay. And so it's like, oh yeah, I knew I knew this guy, Captain Lafitte, who did this and this and this. Or no, I knew this other guy, Captain Lafitte, who said that his upbringing was this way. So like so much of that just kind of obscures huh. his early life because there were multiple Captains Lafitte at that time. But he and his uh, older brother Pierre, who's not in the movie, uh, but was actually a, a you know prominent figure in his life. Basically, it was. Like, him and his brother were doing all of this stuff together. Now, he's he is by far the more famous one, but his older brother was there, like, was also a privateer, was also with him in Barataria. Um, Which, explain what that is. I had to look that up. Okay, so, well, I'll, I'll get to that in, in a second, but there's actually okay, uh, okay. a, like, some sources say that his brother was actually a privateer before him, and that he was just selling the goods that Pierre would steal mm. and then later on became a pirate. Okay. Which would make sense. Right. So Barataria is a uh well there's Barataria Bay, which is a a bay south of New Orleans and it's this area that was kind of a no man's land at the time that Pierre and Jean, the brothers Lafitte, 
set up shop there basically to sell, buy and sell foreign goods. And that's because of the Embargo Act of 1807, where Congress basically said, all right, all of our ships are being harassed by the Brits. And so we're just going to nix any kind of foreign trade by American ships, thinking that that would, you know, kind of let America stay neutral. They thought that maybe that would be like a good diplomatic way to kind of get the Brits to stop bothering them if they said, all right, look, we're just not going to do any kind of foreign trade at all. So now you don't have a reason to keep harassing our ships. Mm. But it just kind of like tanked the economy. Uh, Like it wasn't, it it didn't work at all. And the Brits kept harassing American ships anyway. So it was like, it was a, a total failure. But at this time, people in New Orleans, they still wanted all these foreign goods. That was like their main source of income. Like the economy in New Orleans relied heavily on trade and foreign goods. Which makes sense, but it's not its location and everything we were talking about. Exactly. So they basically set up, like we see in the movie, this like black market of foreign goods that everyone from New Orleans came to. And because of its location, no authorities could do anything about it because it was, you know, it was in these kind of swamps and it was very well defended. And like all of the... Not only was this like common people from New Orleans, this was like elites from New Orleans were coming here and buying and selling foreign goods and making a lot of money doing it. So technically, this is in U.S. territory, the new territory of Louisiana, but it's so kind of isolated that there's basically no administration. Correct. So it's just kind of a free-for-all. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So he was... Uh, Lafitte's basically known, or at this time, was known as like a hero to the people of New Orleans because... So he started off buying and selling the goods in Barataria, but then kind of moved on or like added the business of actually going out and stealing foreign goods from ships, like foreign ships. And he was actually known as this like almost a compassionate pirate because after he would steal all the goods, he would like give the people their ship back and like let them all live. So he would like show up, take all the stuff, but they'd be like, okay, you can keep your ship and your lives. And I'm just going to take your stuff. Which kind of fits with how we see him in the film, portrayed by Yul Brenner, right. where he's kind of like, you know, he's you know, he's a, a criminal, but he's so charming and does seem to have a good moral code. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I didn't see anything about him specifically saying, like, American ships are off limits. I think that was something that they put in the movie to make him seem way more patriotic. Yeah, this is 1950s. You, you have to be we're, we're super patriotic in 1950s because this is just after all the McCarthyism stuff. Like, right. Because they're, they're, they're making him out to be, like, super patriotic and even, like, his reasons for wanting to fight is, like, because I want to be an American and I love this country. It's like, no, he was just an opportunist. Yeah. And, you know, it was going to be more profitable for him to help the Americans. But anyway, so he's this like compassionate pirate. He would he would uh, fake the papers on the foreign goods coming in. Basically, you know, it'd be like a handwritten piece of paper saying this is uh, these are all American goods. And it's like spices from China or something. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, no, this is definitely domestic, you know, domestic products here. You know, the merchants in New Orleans, like they're making money hand over fist. Right. So no one's really So no one's really trying to shut him down, even though he's technically Right. He's yeah. getting zero pushback from authorities. Huh. And none of the people care because they all want that stuff anyway. But there was a governor at the time named Thomas Robertson, actually was the one who was like really anti Lafitte. 
unlike in the movie, I th- we see it's Claiborne. Uh, Claiborne, but this is pre pre Claiborne. I think it's okay. pre Claiborne, like the governor before Claiborne. Okay, was the one who was actually really trying to to squash his operation. Well, that makes sense because uh, Claiborne was the first governor when uh, Louisiana became a state. Right. But the territory had previous governors, which would have been who you're talking about. Right. And the the whole incident with the, uh, oh, we're going to offer a $500 reward. And then Jean Lafitte turns around and says, oh, well, uh, I'm going to put a $10,000 reward on you. Oh, that actually happened. But with this Governor Robertson. Oh, okay. Huh. And apparently Lafitte was so popular that people put up wanted posters for the governor in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> but yeah, something else uh, that was I, I have here that's interesting and like, so like in the movie, it's like, oh, look at this, you know, the Jean Lafitte. Man, they really made him look extra fancy in the movie. Like, that's probably just because he's the main character, right? It's like, no, actually, he dressed really fancy and like had these like fancy noble elite mannerisms because he wanted to kind of portray this image that he was noble and that he was kind of above the rest of the privateers. So, like, he was actually known for dressing uh, and acting a lot more higher class than your typical pirate. He's a criminal making a bunch of money. He's he's kind of doing a, you know, Stringer Bell from The Wire, just kind of like an OG gangster, like, yeah, I'm successful and I'm going to let you know it. Yeah, exactly. So, in 1814... Right before the Battle of New Orleans, the British did come to him uh, with an offer, just like we see in the movie. Basically, help us out, help you know, help us navigate these backward, these back waterways into New Orleans, and we will reward you handsomely. And if you don't, we're going to use our giant force and attack uh, your stronghold at Barataria. And actually, another side note: one of the reasons that he knew those waterways so well is because, like supposedly for his whole childhood he was like really into exploring and so would go would go like explore these routes you know through the swamps in and out of new orleans so he knew them like yeah yeah knew them better than anyone else also prior to getting into the actual piracy part of his operation when he was just smuggling kind of in and out of barataria that's how he would get his product to and from New Orleans is from using those those waterways. And apparently they're really hard to navigate and they're really dangerous. And it can take over a week just to get from Barataria to New Orleans, just in, you know, going really slow up these narrow passages. But he, he knew them really well. And so that's why the, the Brits were really interested in getting him to help them. This guy's freaking Han Solo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he can make much. the New Orleans run. He can make the New Orleans run in less than twelve par six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So was he was he born in this area then? So he is one of the French kind of Creole people uh, and just kinda born and lived born and raised in this area? They don't know. No one knows where he was born. Okay. Based on his name and his familiarity with this area, it seems like he's from this area then, but we don't know for sure. So it's he grew up there. Some people think he was born actually in France. Oh, okay. Others say that he was born on the island of Hispaniola, which is like modern day uh, Dominican Republic and Haiti. Okay. Which obviously Haiti still has, you know, big French influence there. Well, obviously, yeah, yeah. But he did he he did come to New Orleans. He 
he came to New Orleans as a child. Okay, okay. So he did pretty much all of his growing up there. And again, the, the circumstances of him actually getting to New Orleans are not well known. But he, yeah, he okay. basically his whole life was spent in New Orleans. This is his turf, but we just don't know where he actually was born. Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. So after the Brits came to Lafitte, he did then go to the Americans and let them know about the offer because he did he did want to side with the Americans over the British. But like you said, for economic reasons, not for right patriotic reasons. He isn't a reason to be an American patriot. He doesn't he doesn't care about the United right. States. Yeah, exactly. And because he he knew that he could you know leverage the Americans maybe a little more as well. Like the the Americans needed the help more than the British than the Brits did, which means they could give more, and so he could get more yeah, out of the Americans. Yeah, okay. Right. So uh, at this time, his brother Pierre was actually captured and was in jail by the Brits. No, 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 by the Americans. Okay, okay. for piracy. Right. And uh, so when Lafitte met with Jackson, that was like one of the terms was you have to let you have to let my brother go, and so they they did a kind of like open the gate of the prison. Oh no, Pierre escaped. You know, so that you know, they didn't look stupid or desperate, but also Lafitte got what he wanted. And then also, you know, he said, you know, let give me a pardon, give all my guys pardons, and we'll uh we'll help you out in the battle. And so that's what they did. Um I I didn't see anything about like the Americans attacking Barataria. Okay, okay. And like capturing all of his crew. I don't think that was like historically accurate. And, and you got me thinking too that so like so technically Lafitte was a pirate of the Caribbean. So I was looking to see when that movie was set with all the Jack Sparrow stuff. Obviously that's all fictional. But that would have been a couple generations before him. They say that the best guess for like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies would be like seventeen twenties to seventeen fifties. Right. So ballpark ish. I mean it's not too dissimilar, but it would be a couple generations after after the Jack Sparrow times. So I'm trying to think then, so we get to the film itself here, so we meet Jackson, but then we kind of cut to Lafitte, we see the black market, which again, I was like freaking out, because like, there it is, it's the black market, you just have to go and shut it down. Yeah. I don't remember what we were talking about when I was talking about that in the abstract versus being literal. And then I got a little confused, so there was this whole deal with the, is it like a passenger ship called the Corinthian? that a kind of like rival pirate or one of his like fringe guys kind of like seizes against uh Lafitte's wishes yeah that it's all made up but i'm just kind of trying to get it straight in the film yeah right that's all made up there's a a passenger ship an american passenger ship called the corinthian that this other pirate captain brown right knows is carrying a quarter of a million dollars in gold that's right so he says i want to go plunder that ship and lafitte says no i'm big chief beef here i say that american ships are safe no one's touching american ships oh gotcha that's what you're saying was kind of invented yeah yeah yeah. okay right so he goes not only does he go against lafitte and plunder the ship he also sinks the ship and kills everybody on board except for that one little boy right except for the one boy who's rescued by one of the crew but doesn't Lafitte show up basically right as they're sinking the ship and hangs Brown? Yes. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's the thing. So he shows up because he, he like catches wind that Brown is going after the ship. So he shows up and sees basically sees the two ships like as they're plundering the ship, he shows up. Right. And then 
after you know they they like shoot two cannons into the side of the Corinthian, it's sinking, and then all of a sudden, oh no, Lafitte and his whole crew are on board, and that's like their his entrance is a noose comes down and like snags up the captain by the neck, and basically he's like, all right, you know, I got everybody at gunpoint, and one of the most cold blooded moves I've ever seen. Lafitte goes to the guy's first mate and says, all right, here's the deal. Like, are you with me or are you with him? And the guy says, I'm with you. He goes, I'm with you what? He says, I'm with you, boss. And he goes, hands with the rope and says, hang him. (laughs) And makes the guy hang his own captain. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Ruthless. Ruthless. I guess the reason I'm kind of confused is if all the people on the ship do die, but now here's Lafitte on the ship, why do the people all still die? They were already dead when when Lafitte got there. Oh, so they didn't drown. No, he Brown killed them. He all? killed them. He they killed everybody on the ship because they didn't want they didn't want anyone to know they stole the gold. Okay, right. They want they want well, and they didn't want anyone to know that they were the ones or that the ship was like taken at all. They thought they could get away with it if they killed everybody and sank the ship, basically destroy all the evidence, tie up all the loose ends, and then we just have this gold, and we can say we got this gold from wherever. And so now Lafitte has the gold that he's not sure what to do with, and some of his other pirate buddies want to make sure that kid is killed, and they can always keep the gold, and Lafitte's just kind of holding on to it until he decides what to do. Right, and they say, you know, hey, that if that kid, like, squeals and says that all of us... Because that was... Another thing was that... Lafitte's crew that was helping Brown, right? Some of them? Uh, some of them were, yeah. But also the whole reason or one of the reasons that Barataria was kind of allowed to keep going, the reason that the U.S. wasn't more forceful in shutting it down is because Lafitte said, I won't attack American ships. Okay. But if this kid gets out and says, hey, that ship, the Corinthian, uh, everyone on board was killed and it was plundered by these pirates who, stay, who were staying at Barataria, well... Now it's like, okay, now these guys are straight up, you know, combatants, and we have to go... Shut them down. Like, right. declare war on them to get them to stop. Which actually does give Lafitte a non-patriotic reason to want to protect that ship and say it's off limits. Right. Because, it's, yes, there's a quarter million dollars in gold, but that's just on our whole operation if you go after it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And the other guy said, well, we can get away with it if we just murder everybody and sink the ship. Gotcha. And so that was the whole, the whole thing with the kid, where he was like taking care of the kid. He's not going to kill the kid, but he also doesn't want the kid just, like, going back to New Orleans and telling everyone that he was on... The Corinthian. Right. The ship. Um, right. I think the reason I was confused, too, is because they don't actually... Do they just show, like, bodies on the ground? Because, like, this is 1958, so they don't show them slaughtering all the passengers, right? No, there's, like, a, there's like a couple people laying on the ground, and then they, like, mention that... Exactly. Okay. Oh, we killed everybody. There's no... No witnesses, no evidence. Gotcha. And I also, remember, I also watched this like three weeks ago. Not that it's crazy long ago, but like that's why it's not super fresh yeah. there. Okay, okay. That all makes sense. And so then we finally get to the scene where he confronts Jackson to kind of make a deal. And that was true, right? right? Like that actually happened? Not the like sneaking into the party. Oh, I thought I read it did. Oh, did it? I forget where I read that. Then I, I, I don't know. I, I just read that they that they had a meeting. I didn't know okay. that that was like that. The circumstances of that were actually real. Okay, I, th- I swear I read somewhere that like no, he actually snuck in and talked to Jackson basically the way it w- went down in the movie. I'm like, that's crazy. But what we're talking about is yeah, for those who haven't seen it, is yeah, he basically sneaks in through the window and has Jackson at gunpoint, and then that's how he starts the negotiation. And again, I, I know it didn't go down exactly like that, but I was thinking I read that like that was not too far off from how they actually talked and met. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's that's cool. That's something that I didn't see. I just saw that they had that they had met and there was like negotiations. I didn't know that that was like he snuck into the part because that's a really kind of a cool scene in the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's like a that whole scene where like Jackson is in, you know, basically making plans of like, man, how am I going to defend this city with a thousand guys and no powder, no ammo? I have like two ships, and then all of a sudden, in through the window is Lafitte. Yeah, yeah. And then Jackson, though, is also kind of shown to be like cold, not cold-blooded, but like just really calm under pressure. Unflappable, yeah. Because his Jackson's buddy walks in with a gun on Lafitte, and he, you know, he could be like, smoke this guy. But he's like, no, I am going to, you know, I'm playing chess. I'm thinking three moves ahead. I know that this guy has the supplies that I need. Yep. So I'm going to save his life as he's holding me hostage. And now, we, you know, it's kind of like Mexican standoff. Yeah. And then we can make a deal that benefits both of us, which is exactly what happened. And Jackson is definitely the kind of guy, I mean, he, this is old hickory. He's definitely the kind of guy who wouldn't probably be phased by someone having a gun pointed at him. Like, Andrew Jackson does kind of do some monstrous stuff, but he's a badass. Yeah. Right. And this was, you know, not the first or the last time that somebody <laughs> pointed a gun at Andrew Jackson. Oh, right. He already had a ball lodged in his chest from a previous duel that had never got removed. <laughs> right, yeah. And there's a story about, and this is later on when he's president, but there's a story about like a guy, like an assassination attempt where a guy brings two guns to shoot him. And like the first one misfires, second one jams. And Andrew Jackson just like beats the guy almost to death with his, with his like walking stick and like has to actually be like oh. his... Andrew Jackson's guards have to pull Andrew Jackson off of the guy that almost assassinated him so he doesn't straight up murder him because he's just, like, beating the shit out of him. <laughs> right. I mean, he's kind of Ivan the terrible you know, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And there's people that say, like, oh, yeah, like, the reason that that assassination attempt wasn't successful is because the guns themselves were, like, scared of Andrew Jackson. <laughs> uh, yeah, again... He's an interesting guy because again we'll get we'll get next time into some of the monstrous stuff. Like he's the Trail of Tears guy and was very white people are awesome and no one else is as good as white people kind of guy. Right. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. Like he's <laughs> a like a horrible racist yeah. and like did some real shitty stuff even for the time. But he's interesting to read. Yes. Out. Yes. Fast, fascinating guy, but definitely a white supremacist even probably by the standards of the day. Right. So, yeah, so basically then we get to the Battle of New Orleans. So Lafitte has decided to join with Jackson and the Americans against the British who are coming, and we get the Battle of New Orleans. Right. Which um, actually isn't probably too dissimilar from what we see in the film, where they did kind of have this trench kind of set up along the line, kind of running from the Mississippi River all the way to, like, some swamps. And this is all south of New Orleans. Right. So they kind of do set up this trench line. And it is foggy, which the so I thought this is interesting too. So the movie makes it seem like the fog is an advantage for Jackson because Lafitte's sailors are used to kind of you know judging distances in the fog. They can kind of like start shooting the British in the fog, sight unseen. Yeah. Once Lafitte says the distance, but the YouTube video I was watching said that like the fog was actually an advantage for the British, and that they were able to actually get closer because of the fog. So I'm guessing that's something that was just kind of added for you know movie's sake to be kind of a neat little moment unless you have something to, I, I, what was the fleet's role in the battle no i yeah that i mean that's that sounds that sounds correct but do you have any specifics on the fleet's role in the battle or is it more just like he helped so he well he he kind of did more than help basically he was kind of like unofficially in charge of the whole mm. operation like 
So Which we see Jackson taking his advice for sure in the film. Right. So Jackson was giving was the one giving out the orders, but Lafitte was the one saying, Hey, we should do this. And then Jackson's like, All right, go do that. Nice. So okay. Lafitte's the one kind of kind of saying what to do, and then Jackson is just like making his forces do that. Something else that uh that they show kind of an example of in the movie, but is also true to real life, the uh General Yu, Dominique Yu. Yes. Um, the other French the older French guy yeah. that's with uh Lafitte. He is a real historical figure. He did serve in the French military um, as an artilleryman, and he made his way to New Orleans after fighting in Haney and then became a pirate captain under Lafitte. And he was, just like in real life, pardoned in exchange for fighting the British with Andrew Jackson. And because of his skill as an artilleryman, both in the French military and then on pirate ships, he was given command of a artillery battery at the Battle of New Orleans and was like really successful hmm. in, you know, conducting fires on the British and was actually like personally commended by Andrew Jackson after the battle for like how good of a job he did. Okay, nice, cool. And we do see a little bit of a not a bond, but they have a couple moments together where they kind of... He basically confesses to Jackson that he's been lying about his rank from the French days and stuff. Yeah. And that's probably yeah. just for the movie, but... Which we, we know because, like, the whole time in the movie, like, his medals keep changing. And, like, there's the scene... Oh, that's right. ...in the black market at the beginning of the movie where, like, that He old, sells the medal and just pulls out another one. That, right, that old lady gives him a flower and he's like, oh, thank you. And then he, like, takes his his medal off of his uniform and says, you know, oh, this was given to me by, you know, Emperor so-and-so. At, or, I think he said it was given to him by Napoleon. Oh, okay. At Austerlitz. <laughs> and he get, and she goes, she goes, oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, my God, this is so awesome. And he, like, pulls another one out of his pocket and puts it on his chest and, like, walks away. <laughs> which, yeah, which is kind of fitting. Uh, so the whole battle only lasted 30 minutes, which I thought was kind of crazy. Right. Obviously, I mentioned the, the Americans kind of just in general throughout this conflict were outnumbered. And so Jackson's, you know, group is... is well, one, it's very diverse because it's it's a uh, it's a mix of you know English, French, Spanish, and Choctaw. So like, right, his orders had to be given out in all those languages. Like they did, so sure, so Lafitte gives an idea. Jackson has to have those orders spread in four different languages along the front here in the little trench they've got set up, and uh, the fog lifted, which actually helped the Americans in their fortified position, uh, even though they weren't professional soldiers. They were hunters. So a lot of these guys he brought in from right. Tennessee and Louisiana, they were hunters. So even though they weren't trained soldiers, they were actually really, really accurate. Right. They So they mention in the movie the Kentucky Long Rifles. Yes. Which are far superior to like the mass-produced, you know, British muskets at the time. Would have, would have had a lot farther range, just like we see in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, because those, they were like, you know, basically high-end rifles that would have been used for like... I need to shoot that deer that's 300 yeah. yards away, and I only get one shot, and so that has to be really accurate. Whereas the British muskets were, make as many as possible, and it doesn't matter if it's accurate, because I have a hundred of them that are firing in a volley at once. Yeah, so the so the British retreat, after they've lost, they lost 2,000 men, and the uh, Americans, Jackson's group, had only lost about 70. And so the Brits had to hightail it out of there. Anyway, so that the war was already over. Basically, our biggest victory of the war comes right after it's over, and overnight, Jackson becomes a national hero because of the victory of the right. Battle of New Orleans. And so that kind of sets him, basically sets up his whole political career and presidency because of this battle. And uh, and we'll talk more about him, I guess, you know, as we get to next week. But, oh, and so I've seen, I didn't, I didn't, I just kind of saw titles and stuff, so I had never heard of Lafitte. 
But, you know, you kind of do a little bit of Googling, though. You do see stuff like, oh, here's a kid's book from 10 years ago someone wrote called The Pirate Who Saved the United States or something like that, or Mm -hmm. The Pirate Who Saved America. And it's there's actually been a lot of these stories about Lafitte over the years. Obviously, this is DeMille's second movie about Lafitte. There's been other movies about Lafitte. So I didn't think about it until we were talking or you were, you were kind of describing, you know, his his life there. I'm like, the dude is kind of Han Solo. Yeah. Where he's just kind of the lovable yeah. smuggler who finally agrees to help the, quote, good guys. And I'm like, okay, Han Solo. Uh, the other one, too, I was going to mention the relationship with Governor Claiborne's daughter. That's invented for the film. Because so uh, Claiborne uh, was the first governor of the state of Louisiana. Uh, he was married three times, uh, but his only surviving daughter was born sometime after 1812. So there's no way, obviously, that times out with uh, right. uh, being a romantic interest for Lafitte. So that that was all just invented. Let's see. So do you have any information on Lafitte post Battle of New Orleans? Yeah, I did. I did kind of want to talk about his exploits after the battle because this was kind of only like the halfway point of his oh, okay. of his time, you know, doing doing uh cool stuff. stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so after the battle later on in life he became a uh spy for the Spanish during the Mexican War of Independence. Um, actually both him and his brother spied for the Spanish against the United States. Basic No, no, no against uh, against Mexico during the Mexican War of Independence. Oh, the Spanish troops versus the Mexicans. Okay, okay. Right. So when when Mexico was fighting for its independence from Spain, the brothers Lafitte both became spies for the Spanish. Oh, interesting. To hamper the Mexican independence movement. Interesting. They side with the Americans versus the British, but then they side with the Spanish right. versus the Mexicans because they're opportunists. My guess is because Spain was paying right, better. Right, right. <laughs> so after that, they kind of founded this colony on the island of Galveston, which is now in, in Texas, and basically turned it into a second Barataria. Mm. It's like Barataria 2.0. So he, he sets up this colony and gets a bunch of people to move there. And they're, you know, because it's kind of, again, this like no man's land kind of blind spot from the law, they can start, you know, selling these smuggled goods again and making a bunch of money. He initially was not actually raiding any ships himself and in order to get the people that lived on the colony to do it he made letters of mark from a fake country and showed them to the people that would show up on his island he also made them like swear loyalty to him it was like very it was a a lot more kind of authoritarian than his setup at barataria but so he would get these people to you know come to the island he would show them these little letters of mark saying hey you know this whatever the name of the fake country was, says that we can... And you know, these are all, like, uneducated people. Probably couldn't even read the letter anyway. <laughs> they don't know what, what countries, but he says, you know, this says that we're official privateers. We can go raid ships, and it's it's not illegal. But not only was that not true, he wasn't even technically a pirate or a privateer at this time because he had gotten pardoned after the Battle of New Orleans. So he's just a guy. who's getting all these other people to raid ships for him using these fake letters of mark. Then they bring all the stolen goods back to Galveston. And then he's profiting from the buying and selling of all this black market stuff that's going on on his island. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He's basically like this pirate king essentially in Galveston. And he's, and he's not technically doing anything illegal because he's just a guy that lives there, but everyone is like giving him all this money. It's like such a good setup. But then he, he, of course, I, I either from boredom or because he, you know, greed, whatever, 
he gets back into the pirate life. Mm-hmm. And he does have some other exploits that are not not very successful. And then he ends up dying. No one knows exactly when or where. Some people say it was during a sea battle with some Spanish ships, where it's like it's documented that his ship was in this battle and that his ship was like took a lot of casualties. But some people think that he lived. Some people say he died and was buried at sea. Some people think he was killed in a mutiny by his own men. And then in a little bit more of an outlander story, there are people that say that he helped Napoleon escape from Elba Uh somehow. Uh, But, you know, that's like very likely not true. But I just thought that that was interesting. Right. That's that's a fun little wrinkle, though. Yeah. Just kind of put the guy there because that's a fun story. Yeah. So that's that's uh, he kind of disappeared into the into the pirate life and uh not really sure what what happened to him after that but yeah definitely i i think along with andrew jackson i think lafitte definitely needs to go on our oh interesting people tournament like yes yes it's his story is just super fascinating well and yeah and the other so yeah this i feel like this one has a, a couple candidates obviously jackson and lafitte I almost wonder too, and obviously he didn't play into the movie, but I did mention Tecumseh. I'd be very curious to learn more about Tecumseh and see if he'd be someone Mm -hmm. that we don't have a movie really to talk about. The other thing we really didn't talk about, and we don't really have an occasion to do it because, again, a lack of a movie is, so we've mentioned the Louisiana Purchase, but you also have the whole Lewis and Clark expedition that would have happened like 1804 to 1806. And when, you know, when they, they're encountering with uh, Sacagawea, which I've also heard pronounced Sacagawea, but I don't know what's correct there. Uh, but I don't know if there's a movie. Is there a movie about Lewis and Clark? Or if there is, it's probably not one that's any good. Uh, the only movie I know of that is somewhat related, and I I mean, that, there might be another movie, that, like a t- made-for-TV movie or just a movie I never heard of, but there's a movie called Almost Heroes. Have you ever seen that? Oh, that sounds familiar. It's Chris Farley and Matthew Perry, oh. and basically they're explorers that are trying to beat Lewis and Clark oh. to the Pacific Ocean. Wait, for real? It's not very good. It's a, it's oh no, it's a five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, that would, <laughs> that's kind of fun. That I didn't realize that's what the plot was. Man, so timeline wise, that would have been a perfect one if it were actually a good movie, huh? That's funny. But yeah, so we won't be discussing Lewis and Clark just because we really don't have a... So I, I, if, if anything, this is a little bit of our Louisiana Purchase episode. We may get that to a little bit next time too, depending on how much old Davy Crockett gets involved with Louisiana Purchase. But I actually really don't know if he... he he's kind of more Tennessee and Texas though, so probably not. Um, anything else before we kick her to next time here, I guess? Um, yeah, I had, a, I had a couple of, okay. of little notes here. These are just kind of like one-off things. The... Uh, the guard at the beginning of the movie that he that you know oh does doesn't realize he's Jackson first or something yeah he sees right he sees a dog and sets his rifle down to pick up the dog and Jackson picks up the rifle and said you need to you know keep this in your hands at all times type thing oh yeah yeah he doesn't doesn't recognize that it's him like obviously he has never seen an image of Andrew Jackson and just like it's little things like that in these historical movies that are things that I take for granted now living in like the modern age right like there was never a time the whole time that i was in the military there was never a time that i 
didn't know what the person in charge of me looked like because I, I either met them in person or their pictures are everywhere. Right. Like your whole chain of command. Like any any military building you go to is going to have like the commander of that installation and then their boss and their boss all the way up to like the secretary of whatever service and then the secretary of, secretary of defense and then the president. Like there's pictures of all those people. But back then, that would not have been the case. So I just think it's funny that there was like, you know, this guy's like, the commanding general of the army walks by him and he's like, oh yeah, you know, can you believe old Hawkface is making us do this and that? It's like, yeah, I am old Hawkface. Yeah, like- yeah. <laughs> um, which again, because he did kind of have these sharp features. Um, and, then actually, and then I guess the other thing I was going to mention is this is actually the second time that Charlton Heston played uh, Andrew Jackson. Really? There was a 1953 movie called The President's Lady that's all about his romance with Rachel. It just doesn't have particularly good reviews, and so like maybe we could huh. do it as a bonus episode later after the fact, but it was kind of not worth uh, including uh, this time around. I did have one other note okay. on the movie itself. I didn't understand the ending. Not that I didn't understand what happened. Oh, that, that's what I, that's kind of what I was asking about the whole Corinthian thing, why all of a sudden he's taking blame for the it. The way that it ended just didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me. So Yeah. He, so I, I thought it was so it was kind of cool the way that they set it up with the kid the little kid that we were talking about earlier. There's the witness to that murder the murder right. of all the people on the ship. He sneaks into the party cuz he's getting ready to leave and he just wants to say goodbye to Lafitte. Right. Cuz he's getting ready to leave with the the guy on his crew cuz he just got pardoned. And so that I thought it was oh that's kind of cool that they're like, you know, bringing this conflict up right at the end. And because, like, I had honestly forgot about that kid. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, we're like dealing with the battle and everything. And then also, they have that whole thing where, oh, because one of the other things we didn't mention, Lafitte's fiance, who is Claiborne's daughter, her sister was on the ship. That's right. And was killed. That's right. Again, all made up, but yeah. Right, 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 right. The daughter of the captain who killed that sister shows up at the party because she's a pirate. Right. Wearing the dress. Of the sister. Of the sister. And so she shows up at the party wearing the dress, and the and his fiance says, oh, wow, that's a nice dress. You know, Madam So-and-so, the seamstress, made me one just like it. But, you know, my sister took it with her on the Corinthian, yeah. which was something else that was interesting because it was like, oh, that's right. No one here knows that the Corinthian is sunk. They just think they just haven't come back yet, or they, or they weren't scheduled even to come back yet, right? Right, because it, it, it was going, you know, the ship was gone. Right. It was going somewhere else, and so it was, you know, they didn't expect to hear anything from those people for months. Right. And it was only it had only been like two months at this point. Ugh. So they don't, none of them know that the ship is sunk. Right. They think all those people are alive and on vacation, basically. Yeah. Right. So then the kid shows up, and he gets, and, and Lafitte's like, Oh, because he's talking to a little girl. Right. Uh, the, the little kid is talking to a little girl. And the little girl comes up to Lafitte and says, hey, there's this like little kid here who wants to see you. And Lafitte says, tell that kid to meet me out back. Like, do not come in here. Right. In case anybody recognizes him. But he gets he gets recognized. And so everyone's like, recognizes the little kid as, you know, the little kid that works on the Corinthian. They're like, whoa, what are you doing here? Right. Do you like fall overboard or something? Yeah. Yeah. What What happened? And he says, uh, well, oh, yeah, um, I fell overboard. And they're like, so where's the ship? What happened to you? How did you get back here? And he said, uh, well, because uh, he knows that if he spouts off, the pirates are probably going to kill right. him. <laughs> like, they're going to wax his ass if he, you know, is like, oh, yeah, the pirates showed up and they killed everybody. Uh, but he also doesn't want to, like, cause Lafitte any problems because Lafitte basically saved his life. Right. And so he's like, oh, there was uh, there was a storm and uh, it was and the guy's like, uh, there's there haven't been any storms and he's like yeah there was you know there was a storm and they're like 
did the ship get sunk? Like, what what happened to you? And then Lafitte basically kind of, you know, takes the heat off him as like, yeah, you know, the Corinthian was sunk. But then for some reason says, yeah, and I, I sunk it. Like, why? Why did he not just say, yeah, it was this other captain who sunk it and I strung him up anyway. So like, it's taken care of. Also, I'm pardoned. So you can't do anything to me now. That that confused me as well, which is why, which is why my thought was that it was actually Brown who recruited a bunch of Lafitte's men to go and take the ship was my theory. And that's why Lafitte was taking right. the blame. And if technically he, he did keep the goal and sank the ship, he just didn't kill the people on board. No, he didn't sink the ship. Brown sank the ship before Lafitte oh, got there or okay. shot the sh- cannon shots into the ship that caused it to sink. Gotcha, gotcha. But he did keep the gold, but it was like... No, right. I don't know. <sighs> it was. It just didn't make any sense to me why he would take the blame for that. Because either way, he's going to have to leave. Like, they're not going to let him stick around. It's almost like because that was easier than the, the, trying to explain the nuance and then still having to leave anyway. Like, it's almost just, like, too messy. I guess. It, especially at that point in the film, it, which honestly is maybe then not a good way to structure your story. Because it's like, well, that's a weird thing to bring back up at the end just to... I, I think like at the end of the day, though, if he's your right. you know romantic pirate, you want to get him back on the high seas, and that's how to do it. Right. Well, and for people who haven't seen, this is all in like the last six minutes yeah, of the movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. All of this stuff happens. Like bang, bang, bang. Like it right goes after from happy and, ending oh, to and then, yeah. Right. And then the pirate girl who whose daddy killed, you yeah. know, who's wearing the dress. Yeah. And right, and has tried to kill him multiple times in the movie, and also he killed her father. He's now his romant- new romantic interest. Yeah. Is all of a sudden? Yeah. Is all of a sudden like oh I. You know, because he says, "Oh, how how could she love a man who you oh. know is respond or who like let her sister die?" So she says, "Oh, I I can love a man who killed my father." It's like this is weird. Like I, it's it, it's out of nowhere that all of a sudden she's a romantic interest when the whole movie she like wants to kill him. Not only yeah. is not romantic against you know for him, like has tried to kill him and hates him for the entire movie. Oh uh, yeah, I I thought there was a little sexual tension there, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, all, so the, she was also like wearing pirate get up the whole movie and all of a sudden they put her in a dress and she's hot and now she oh. is now she can be romantically oh, involved right. with the main character, I guess. Huh. I don't know. It was just the ending of the movie was was so strange. But yeah, so yeah, not not the best script. Uh I think Heston is just I he's not great either but yule brenner is worth the price of admission i would say yeah his accent is really bad though. oh <laughs> i just kind of saw that again as like i don't even know what he's trying to do it's just kind of whatever but uh <laughs> right it, it it just seemed like he was going for kind of like just like vaguely foreign accent because well, it wasn't french that's his mo because what is actually yule brenner's ethnicity because he plays everything he plays oh that's he true. plays Ramsey yeah, the second. He plays the king of Siam. Right. Like he plays a cowboy. Right, right. He kind of plays all ethnicities throughout his career. And but I actually don't know what he is. Uh, I think he's Russian. Yeah, he's Russian. Okay, okay. He does look ex- more exotic than you would think of a Russian looking. So it's like he's he's this actually kind of unique guy where Yul Brenner can kind of play white or Egyptian or Asian, and you actually kind of buy it more than you do in like say. John Wayne's playing Genghis Khan. Right. Almost like an Omar Sharif. Yeah, but, but Omar Sharif's Egyptian. So like, it's like oh, but can pass for white. Right. You're right. You're right. Right. But he, he but he plays, you know, in Dr. Zhivago, he's like a... He's Russian. Like right. a little white Russian yeah, guy. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's, that's a good comparison. But, and both, both really good actors, obviously. Right. So, yeah. So that was The Buccaneer. An enjoyable movie. Far from perfect. But yeah, 
Stay tuned next time, and we will discuss the Frontiersman Davy Crockett.